You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Tell me where you spend your Sunday mornings and then where your grandmother spent her Sunday mornings, and I'll venture a guess at what you think Christian art looks like. In the realm of Christian art that involves basilicas and mosaics, the icon holds a special place. By some accounts, mainly a window through which one looks upon divine reality. The the artistry of the icon itself nonetheless promises a different view of the world we inhabit, and the Virgin of the Passion, if Matthew Milliner is right, seeks nothing less than to set the world's eyes back on the Christ who saves by suffering and whose passion does not begin on a cross, but in his very infancy. Matthew's book, The Mother of the Lamb, The Story of a Global Icon from Fortress Press, tells the story of that icon beginning as it does with an artist who departs an imperial city and continuing in our day as that artist's work journeys everywhere people call out to the heavens. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Matthew to his show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nathan. The introduction to Mother of the Lamb sets the table with a claim about theology and art, namely that this icon, the one that you invite us to understand, does not fill the air with the sounds of propositions and polemics, but welcomes us into a different kind of theology, a kind of hesychastic silence inside of which a different kind of theology happens. So, first of all, for our readers who haven't uh, taken their church history class for a few years, what is hesychasm, and uh, what are the differences between these two kinds of theology? Hmm. So, hesychasm, from the Greek word for silence, hesychia, and it shows up in 1 Thessalonians. It's just this this basic word, the the quiet. And um, it becomes the main avenue for spirituality in the east and it it gets branded often as often happens when it gets attacked and so it becomes a it had long existed but but when this monk named barlam comes along and starts to accuse these monks of of navel gazing and all these elaborate embodied prayer techniques i like to call it sort of a christian yoga then in their defense of it it got the label hesychasm but it had long existed and that you can find it in many different avenues, but that again is the the mainstream source, and it re- is a result of the collapse of an empire, right? So it's like, oh, we've, we're losing these political connections; they're not working out. What are we going to do? Find some interior silence and depth, and then beautifully enough, it has iconographical repercussions as well. From this deep place of Christian silence, these new forms of iconography emerge. So the biographical part of this book, you know, starts us in the 12th century in Constantinople, and the city has just swollen in population for the worst kinds of reasons. So once again, set the stage for us. What was the character of the Constantinople that, uh, and I'm going to try to pronounce this the way that you uh, phonetically sounded out in the book, Opsevdis learned Opsevdis, his trade in. Exactly. exactly. Uh, and, and and of course, my my eye that learned uh, Erasmian Greek wants to say Opsudos. Yeah, and it's like nope. That's that. That's not how you say the it. Modern Greeks beat that out of me. They're like, <laughs> stop saying that. <laughs> but uh, what was the artistic scene in the old imperial city? Yeah, so we're talking about Constantinople, the the vastly more populous than Paris at the time or London at the time. 
the great golden city, the envy of every European king and queen. So that gives you a sense of, of the, the pinnacle of Christian civilization, according to many. And it's before 1204 when the Venetians sack Constantinople and essentially put it out of business, at least for a time. It has a whimpering resumption, and then it gets finally squashed by the Ottomans in 1453. So, so the last great epoch of this city of gold. And into this city, these refugees are pouring in as the Ottomans are well, initially an earlier form of Islam are making more um, inroads into Asia Minor. Now, these are exactly the churches in the in the book of Revelation that are warned that their lamps will be removed from their lampstand. Well, it seems to be happening. We're losing these this the heartland of of Anatolia, of, of what is now Turkey um, to Islam. And so as these refugees pour in and the city is swelling, um, it's still at this peak of refinement. They know the threat is out there. Does this not sound like America today, right? We've got all these uh, new conflicts where don't seem to be as strong as we once were. We've got refugees pouring in, right? So this is what's going on in Constantinople. And into that theater emerges an artist whose name we know, Theodore Absevdis. He would have known the city at this high level. He probably was a monk, and so he's experiencing extremely high level of education, refinement, liturgical action, of course, in Greek, in the original language of the New Testament. And so he is an advanced player in the, in the realm of uh, people who have marinated in peculiar atmospheres, rich atmospheres in Christian history. And so he he sort of comes down to us as this figure, and then we have things that he painted. So, so that's the scene in Constantinople where he, according to almost all art historians who have looked at this, they have to, they, they just all agree. They're like, this guy had to have been trained in Constantinople. His art is just that good. And forgive me if I'm I'm mixing up books here, because by good fortune, I've, I've had the chance to read a couple art history books here lately. But I remember reading about Constantinople as a city where classical statuary was still in the streets, even as the center of the city was a Christian basilica. Yeah, that's in that's in my book. You might have read it elsewhere, too. That's so true. Right. We think we don't think we think that, oh, the prudish Easterners who dared not look upon flesh because it was sinful and tainted. No. They were surrounded by these images. They wouldn't put them in their churches, but they would be slapped on the exterior of a gate or something. We don't, don't destroy them. They're beautiful. There's this complete misperception. Oh, we had to wait for the Italian Renaissance to finally have this great engagement of the beauty that the Eastern... It's, it's false. It's, 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 it, it's not that that didn't happen in the Renaissance, but it happened in Byzantium as well. Why did we never get that message? 1204, right? The East... The, the West is sacked by the East and they get to tell the story. And so the Renaissance tells us the story of this great humanist revival. And for, of course, for the Christian humanist podcast, you have more allies in Byzantium as well in the East. They also had this rich and deep humanism, but they're also not as uh, taken in by the revival of paganism because they had long known about it. It's kind of like the, uh, the evangelical who gets really excited about, ooh, all these new things that I wasn't allowed to do. And then you have a more seasoned Christian who's like, yeah, I don't know if you're going to find that that satisfying. But the person runs off and does it. Like That's the way that the great Greek humanists looked at the Renaissance humanists 
in the 15th century. Like, yeah, you guys are really taken in. We've known these documents for centuries. We know that there's not much there, but you, the minute you get a translation, you're freaking out because you're not grounded the way that the East is. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, I'm reminded, and, and you know, I'll make this a short sidebar, but I'm reminded of the first time that I discovered the Eddas of Northern Europe. And, uh, you <laughs> know, this translate, this obviously monastic translator who nonetheless gives us these, uh, you know, versions of Odin and Loki and, you know, all these oh. figures who... You know, I, I figured we'd have to wait till Friedrich Nietzsche to get these versions, but there they are in the 14th yeah. century. Yeah, not that. They're like, yeah, we know about this. It's cool. It's fine. You don't have to get hot and bothered about it. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. <laughs> well, uh, let, let's continue our journey. I mean, you know, why does Theodore go to Cyprus? We don't know. That's uh, it's speculative. So I like and I, I like to let my mind run a little free here. Maybe, you know, we could turn it into a historical novel. He had an affair and, and is exiled from Constantinople. It's possible. Who knows? Um, it could have been a choice. Um, he could have said, uh, hey, I'm, I'm fed up with uh, this imperial pomp and I want to go off to the boonies. Um, it could have been uh, any variety of reason. Uh, he could have just been commanded. Um, he might have been. I mean, we know that there was a request in Cyprus, which is an outpost of Byzantium at this time, uh, for an artist of refinement and distinction. And so he could have been sent to Cyprus as a gift. All right. Pluck one of the best artists out of Constantinople, send it down to Cyprus and give this uh, reclusive monk, charismatic monk named Neophytos, a really nice artist to refine his cell. Now, so any of those could be a possibility. What is a historical certitude is that this artist, probably from Constantinople, finds his way into Cyprus. That we concretely know because his name is on a monument in the late 12th century um, where he signs his name. In, in, yeah, speaking in of things that we thought month. happened for the first time in Italy in the 13th century. Of <laughs> yeah. course, that's what we think, right? We get this. I mean, you're lucky to get any art history at all in our world, you know, but nevertheless, um, I'm sorry to inform people that the art history they have received is probably a good bit out of date, especially if you see this Italian-centered understanding that Giotto is the first great artist and we know his name and that was all anonymous before that. Not true. We know an artist, at least one, and there are others I could point to, um, that named Theodore Apsevdis, who, who was painting before, 100 years before Giotto ever breathed oxygen. That's great. Now, I'm not going to be able to get the complexity of the fate of Cyprus in Richard I's crusade across in a podcast. So listeners, you need to go out and get Matthew's book. You'll see what I mean. There's a lot going on here. Run, I don't do... walk. What's that? Run, don't walk. To That's to right. That's right. Bookstore, which probably doesn't exist. <laughs> I do want to focus for a moment on one of the objects of the crusades, namely the true cross. Yeah. Now, because a 21st century North American Christianity focuses so much on the personal and the intellectual, so beliefs and creeds and, you know, worship wars, uh, you know, something as material and as particular as a beam of wood seems out of place as a central site of devotion, but mm. it definitely was. So tell our yeah. listeners about the true cross because this does become important. So 
I I will throw this out there is that this is very much if anyone is concerned about triumphalistic Christianity and the political repercussions that could be damaging, this should be of interest because now we have this. We can just what's great about history is you can see the trajectory played out and learn the lessons without having to live it yourself, which many people have decided nevertheless to go and live it. And then they'll experience the negative repercussions. Good luck with that. But I, I like I prefer to. To, to see it played out and, and learn the lessons um, in, in, in a study as opposed to in the field of uh, political reality. Um, so all this to say, um, the true cross, I am a skeptic um, in regard to the true cross. I am not a skeptic in, in regard to the, the core doctrines of the Christian faith. But the story is this, is that um, I'm not a skeptic about the place where Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. I believe that the actual place can still be visited with other skeptical archaeologists who've been convinced um, that that is actually the place. I would say, yeah, I think the, that's probably the place. But in that place at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, you can go down the stairs and find the chapel of the Holy Cross, the true cross, where Helena, Constantine's mother, presumably found the cross upon which Jesus was crucified. I'm skeptical about it, not only because I I, I doubt that they would have kept the wood, right, and put it, well, they probably would have reused it, I, I, would, I would think, in one sense or another. Um, they didn't. Uh, very very they, efficient, those Romans. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So all this to say, um, even if it is true, there's reason to be suspicious about it, because what is often forgotten about this story is that the way that Helena found the the true cross was she tortured some Jews by lowering them into a pit who refused to disclose the location until they coughed up the evidence and, and told her where it was. And if you read the earliest accounts of the discovery of the true cross, there's an undeniable anti-Jewish polemic embedded in those understandings. So unfortunately, this true cross then becomes connected also to the Crusades. Um, so um, initially, it's taken by the the biggest hunk of the true cross is taken by the Persians, the, the Byzantine Christians get it back. And then when Jerusalem is conquered by Islam, um, then the crusaders come in and they get it back again. And the 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 reason that Richard the Lionheart conquers Cyprus is because Saladin, the great general, the Muslim general who reconquered Jerusalem in 1187, he has it in his possession. Like we gotta get the true cross back, and that's what launches the Third Crusade. We gotta get it. They can't have it. And so all of this is tied up to the quest for the true cross which is never found the biggest you can find pieces of it here and there but the biggest chunk is lost to history and so what i mean in the book by the truer cross is i'm saying in this gorgeous icon you have the spiritual truth of the cross is disseminated that thankfully is disconnected from all of this warlording and and crusading and anti-jewishness and i think that's the not only the the true cross um in the sense of i don't believe that the physical artifact of the quote-unquote true cross is real but also it's spiritually true the icon that shows you the cross on it the virgin of the passion is more connected to the spiritual principles of christianity which is not about triumphant aggression but about suffering love
Right, right. And I mean, this is one of the lessons of medieval Christianity is that every form of the faith is historically contingent. Uh, you know, most mm-hmm. of my study and most of my teaching is in Anglo-Saxon Christianity rather than in Byzantine Christianity, but the uh, the devotion to the true cross is no less intense there in those ninth century Old English poems. So exactly, and it's so beautiful the the dream of the rude and and all of this emerges in the in in that context as poetic devotion. But then they get real pieces, right? Because those are coming back to England. With the Crusaders, like, yeah, now we have the real thing. It's like, well, and and that's what I always have to tell my students is that, I mean, for the original audience, this is not a poetic symbol. This is a a wooden object that exists somewhere in Palestine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, And this is what I wrestle with with my students as we go through the Crusades is I say, you know, the truth is that right there in London at the Temple Church, you could go to the Holy Sepulcher, right? And insofar as you partake the Eucharist, you are closer to the body of Jesus than if you were in Jerusalem itself, right? And that's this Eucharistic realism. And so it's it's a tragedy in a sense that we we had to have the actual Jerusalem. And you might say, you know, are legitimate defensive missions okay? Like, I think so, but they didn't work, right? Over and over again, we had a bunch of these crusades that were ineffective in attaining their goal, which is the physical Jerusalem. And the truth might be right there in Jesus's words to the Samaritan woman, neither on this mountain, right, nor in Jerusalem, but wherever worship happens in spirit and in truth. And I know that's very Protestant, and but um, I am a Protestant, and I also um, hope that I've come to that conclusion with great respect for the importance of physical objects. Um, I love relics. I believe that they're connected to the idea of the resurrection of the body, but it's this particular relic um, that I'm zeroing in on that might be of deep concern to us. And we have Billy Graham's first grade papers here at Wheaton uh, and I'm like, well, that's our relic, right? It's like, why do we have that? We're idolaters. No, we're honoring the gospel that he preached with that. There's nothing wrong with physical stuff. I, I, I think I'm completely dodging your, your typical Catholic critique of Protestants who don't understand this. What I'm doing is I'm having acknowledged the beauty of the physical objects, this physical faith of ours. I'm saying, if you want to zero in on your critique, take a scalpel, not a, not a mallet. And say, this is the one that I'm saying is tied up with some particularly negative ideas. Makes good sense. Let's turn to the elements of the icon itself. And I'll remind our listeners that this is a much better discussion if you have Matthew's book in front of you and you're (laughs) looking at its illustrations. Uh, But we'll do what we can on an audio podcast. (laughs) So perhaps the most striking feature of this icon is that the Christ child, which most artists portray as almost stoic in his calm, uh, is struggling visibly to break out of Simeon's grasp at the temple. So yeah. what kind of work is that feature doing in terms of moral instruction and in terms of theological reflection? Yeah, it's just drilling down into the depth of the Feast of the Presentation on February 2nd. All we know it is Groundhog's Day. But what it goes back to is this glorious biblical event of the presentation of Jesus in the temple, according to the law, Simeon is present, Anna is present, and they are there, and they prophesy about this child's future. Now, that is undeniably biblical. Martin Luther said, why on earth would you get rid of the feast of the presentation on February 2nd or March 25th, the Feast of the Annunciation? Of course, Protestants did 
unfortunately. And it's just one of those traditions that we, I really think, need to recover. And that church, where the first image of the Virgin of the Passion emerges from, is commentary upon that event. It's amplifying that biblical moment and imagining what would the face have been like of this child as he's held by this strange man? How would the mother have felt? Ever seen a mother I give this her son to to someone else, like a little nervous, like oh, okay, you don't drop him, you know. And and so that's Christian humanism and thinking what that would look like if it was painted. That's what Theodore's doing. He's trained in imaginative visualization of the scriptures, not to mention the liturgy, which of course does that work as well. And now he gives it a living color effect, and you can walk in to the scene of the presentation at this tiny little church in Cyprus. That, of course, was built in, well, not of course, if you hadn't read it, but I'll explain it. It's built in- But our listeners are going to, they're going to. Yeah, they're going to go to, right? It's built in response to the sack of the island by Richard I. It's built in mourning, loving, suffering response to the Crusades. Some people are out there, they'll probably get a big audience when they go around and say, I'm an ex-evangelical because I learned that Christianity is on the side of the oppressors. You're right. You did not learn false information. But do you realize that Christianity is also on the side of the oppressed? Just as frequently, sometimes even more colorfully, in this case, literally colorfully, the version of the passion is a response to the Crusades. Let's imagine we've got a militaristic Christian out there who wants to get out there and join the Knights Templar. I got bad news for you. You can't do it. They don't exist. Good luck finding a Christian military order. About militaristic Christians who've joined the military. Yeah, but they don't have full consecration from leaders like in a full baptismal service. Now you're officially going to paint a cross on you. That might happen. Although there are certain Baptist churches in Texas. No, I'm I'm joking. I'm joking. Texas Baptist, I am so sorry. I couldn't resist that. (laughs) They might come close. That's true. But but the point is, is that it would be an aberration. It's not official. We tried the military order thing in Christianity. It didn't play out. So if you want a visual repercussion of the Crusades, the closest you can get, the vastly most pervasive visual repercussion of the crusades in our time is the virgin of the passion icon that is my claim you can try to disprove it i guess you could but i think at every point you could say but what about the movie about the crusades right there's been some recent really bad movies about them and i would say right ever yeah and i would say yeah the virgin of the passion shows up in the avengers and that's one of the most what the original avengers and considering the amount of humans that watch that i win Right. <laughs> There's more people, more people that watch the Avengers where the Virgin of the Passion shows up as Scarlett Johansson is beating someone up. All of a sudden they threw it in there because this icon is everywhere. And that's far more visually pervasive than a bad movie about the Crusades. <laughs> <laughs> Stepping away from the Avengers for just a moment. <laughs> um I feel like sections... I've made fun of ex-evangelicals. Sorry. Oh, there you go. There you go. You're out there. I, but, I uh, sympathize with your pain. I've experienced it myself. I'm just still in the game because I've found other resources. There you go. There you go. I do want you to talk a little bit about one of the features of this church that I had a little bit trouble visualizing, and that is the prepared throne. Yeah. Um, I, I, I had trouble you know, visualizing where it is relative to the icon and things like that. Uh, yeah. What I did find fascinating, though, is that it is, 
I'm going to say manifesting. And if you want to use a different participle, you're free to uh, a certain answer to a certain Eucharistic dispute about the nature yeah. of the Eucharist. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, talk about what this prepared throne is and talk about the ways that it silently, to go back to that theme, uh, enters into this conversation about what happens in the Eucharist. Yeah. So there's a profound level of theological sophistication at work behind all of these images. And we know that there was a dispute that happened in the city of Constantinople about what exactly was going on in the Eucharistic sacrifice. And that is, of course, not in addition to what Christ did, but it participates in what Christ did. And that's orthodox understanding. And so as they went back and forth, there was this particular very brilliant, clever man who said, well, you know, if the Eucharist is Christ, then Christ can't offer to himself. So the Eucharist can't be offered to the Trinity. It can only be offered to the Father and Holy Spirit. And if you kind of say, huh, you'd be right. And the whole city of Constantinople said, huh? What do you mean? This guy uh, really dug his heels in and he that's the definition of heresy. When you decide to think on your own, apart from the main tradition of the church and persist even when you are publicly corrected. And so that's what happened with this guy. He was really smart. He kept saying, no, 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 it has to be this way. And if you dislike punitive theologies of atonement, and there are good theologies of atonement, but if you dislike the idea that the father is separate from the son, like letting out his anger on Jesus because he really hates you and he wants to beat up on Jesus. It's like, ah, oh, this is a this is really bad non-Trinitarian theology because it separates the father and the son. It's totally wrong. And it's and one of the places where it began to be developed was in Constantinople. And I am glad that it was shut down. So when they're shutting it down, they're like, all right, well, let's let's make sure that people don't have this bad idea. So how about we take an image of the Trinity slap it on the top of the church to let people know that indeed Jesus is being offered to himself a non-punitive system of sacrifice where where the the purely loving trinity abolishes any need for sacrifice within its own life ends this retributive human construct that we've created where blood has to be shed i want that person to pay right if you've ever felt that way Christianity annihilates that understanding and God annihilates it with his own Trinitarian love. So they slap this image of the Trinity onto the churches to remind people of this wonderful understanding of Christian atonement, not pagan right. atonement. So, so visually, this is in the top of the church then, so it'd yeah. be above the icon? Exactly. Get it get it close there. And so this is the beautiful thing is fortunately we're, we're at a point before uh, some Renaissance Christian humanism went awry and started to depict God as a bearded male hovering up in the sky, which is essentially we we drew the God that atheists would ultimately disbelieve in. We, per we furnished it for them. Here you go. Here's a God that's really hard to believe in. Oh, they're like, yeah, I don't believe in that one. Well, we painted it, right? So it's our fault. We got to fix that. Um, nevertheless, uh, they fortunately in the Byzantine world wouldn't dare to depict God the Father as this bearded male because God is beyond gender. He is, remember Genesis 1, 26 and 27, right? Male and female together image God who's beyond all that, right? They, they know the great Dionysus, the Areopagite and this glorious apophatic theology. So the closest they can get to depicting the Trinity is a throne, a dove, and a cross. Bam. 
So that's called the prepared throne. They slap it up there and it is a reminder. It's a protological theology. You've probably heard of eschatological, the end times. Protological is just the beginning times. What was God thinking when he made this world of ours? And the great Byzantine idea, the great orthodox, patristic, matristic, however you want to say it, idea is simple, profoundly simple, that there was never a time where God hadn't already planned to rectify all the sins that had ever been, would, would one day be created, would, would, would one day be committed. There was never a time where he was like, oh my gosh, I've made something and it blew up in my face. What am I going to do? I'll become incarnate. That's it. No, that none of that. God is outside of time. So he knew from the beginning, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, it says in Revelation. And so the prepared throne is prepared in that sense, that God has got this. God has got, I know it's so hard to believe that. And yet, in meditation on the passion, Julian of Norwich, that's the context in which she said her famous lines, all manner of things shall be well. That's what the prepared throne is suggesting, is that the cross shows you that evil has been outwitted, outthought, outplayed from the beginning. And so when you look at that image of the Virgin of the Passion, these angels bearing the cross, the spear, and the sponge have actually taken it from the protological prepared throne before time and brought it down and said, you're going to take care of everything. You, Jesus, are, are the one chosen from the foundation of the world, and it's going to be ugly. And the mother looks apprehensively at the spear because she knows what's going to happen. That's this profound icon. Now, when I was in seminary, they told me that Karl Barth fixed things. He kind of set up all of these uh, dilemmas and 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 recreate, rather responded to the dilemmas of, of theology that had really bad understandings of predestination and all this stuff. And he fixed it. And I'm so glad he did by centering it back in Jesus and all this horrible theology that set the American psyche careening in all these awful directions. This idea that there's this wicked God who chooses people from the foundation of the world to be damned and some people to be saved, completely unchristian idea. Well, Karl Barth, I'm so glad he fixed it, but it was fixed in Byzantine art centuries and centuries and centuries before. And so in the very uh, town where I was studying this theology and being illuminated by a superior Athanasian understanding of predestination, <laughs> there was this Virgin of the Passion icon in the Princeton University Museum that communicated all the same wisdom. And uh, I still have yet to convince uh, the theologians who specialize in Bart that that matters because, well, that's art. That's another thing. Um, maybe Maybe they will will see um, that that the art historical record confirms, endorses, amplifies what their wonderful theologian Karl Barth has has recovered. So that's a little theological sideline there. No, it's yeah, not a sideline. Uh, it's it's the heart of of human salvation. It's not a sideline. Right, it matters right. to everybody. No, and I and I very intentionally haven't yet listened to your talk with uh, Jason Michelli over on Crackers and Grape Juice because I didn't want his interview to interview this one to influence <laughs> this one. But uh, now I'm looking forward to hearing uh, Michelli freak out when you uh, say that Bart was uh, anticipated by a millennium. 
Easily. Well, well, and Bart himself would say it because he got the idea from Athanasius, right? Right, and so, right. So, and, and so, but the idea is that Athanasius was visualized um, by people who had this more organic, Christ-centered understanding. Yeah. Very good. And we got, let's we got just, to let's, really quickly. I mean, yeah, like, go ahead. And, and you know, with all the stuff that's happened with Bart, and, you know, you don't have to cancel him. You have to be honest about him. And I think actually there's good news in this. Because now that we know of his relationship with Charlotte von Kirschbaum and, and, you know, which was kind of awkward, it's just like Carl Jung would kind of walk into a conference with Tony Wolf on one hand and Emma Jung on the other. And it's like, wow, that's messed up. Right. And it's the same thing to a certain extent with Bard. And everyone says, ah, I never have to read him now. No, you do. Because now when you read Bard, you can, of course, condemn this unnecessary. You know, it's like you don't have to endorse that, but you can say, maybe it's Charlotte. Maybe it's Charlotte <laughs> von Kirschbaum who I remember George Hunsinger saying this in seminar. Maybe it was Charlotte. I think I can't remember who said it. Maybe she found the Athanasius quote that inaugurated his recalibration of the doctrine of double predestination centered in Christ. And so let's now just think of them together. And even though we I would personally say I I think this is a deep insult to his wife, just like I think Carl Jung was a total idiot. And he, as he later realized after his heart attack, yeah, this was really bad for my wife, Emma. <laughs> I don't think I should have done this. Right? Well, um, so we can condemn that, but also say a, a collaborative process might have been at play. So what we hail as the genius of these great Swiss guys, right now we can... Um, uh, recalibrate with the, with the wisdom of these women as well. No different, of course. Obviously, the easier one is with Hans Horst von Balthasar, who gets all his ideas and he tells us he got it from Adrian von Speyer, the great mystic physician. So all that to say. Uh, well, I thought we were going to go from a protological to soteriological, but we took a detour through Switzerland and that's okay. <laughs> but <laughs> I want to talk a a few years ago, I got a chance to interview Dom Crossan about his book mm. about Christian art and and its emphasis yeah, it's on Anabasis uh, when yeah. certain paintings depict the resurrection. So one distinguishing feature of that Anabasis tradition involves Christ leading a procession of all humanity out of Hades rather than showing up alone. Yeah. And I get the sense that the same visual vocabulary is at play in The Virgin of the Passion. So, I mean, talk a little bit about the redemption of humanity that crosses that comes across visually. Yeah. I hadn't made that connection. That's a really interesting point to bring um, his work in uh, of a universal redemption in league with the Virgin of the Passion. And it just is a reminder that what needs to happen to the history of art and has happened, but you have to piece it together in all these different studies, be nice for someone to do it, kind of in an efficient one volume kind of overview. But that all of these renaissance motifs can be restored and renewed by connecting them to their earlier orthodox analogs right the orthodox approach would be to sort of trash them and say oh, your typical conservative orthodox approach would be ah oh, the renaissance is a bunch of fleshy meaty images we don't want that we want the pure orthodox understanding but you can redeem these renaissance motifs that become famous by uh uh fertilizing them with their earlier understanding. We know how that works theologically. We call it resourcing, resourcement, right? It's what happened in the Second Vatican Council. Let's go back to these ancient Christian ideas to, to renew the calcified Thomism of the 20th century. Well, that can happen visually as well. 
And so what you just unfurled is a way of doing another way that that happened is that all of humanity is predestined in Christ. That is the Athanasian Bardian insight. They hadn't yet parsed it into, which is, again, what drew, drove the American psyche crazy, is that, oh, am I one of the elect? The answer is yes, you are. Now, you can, because there's no human who's ever not been predestined in Christ. Now, everyone thinks, well, is this now moving in a universalist direction? You don't have to go in that direction. What you simply have to say is somebody can choose, you could go in that direction, I should also say, but somebody can choose against their actual identity, against their deepest selves. And we all know that. We all, we all know people it might be the person looking in the mirror. In my case, it might be yours. It might be someone you know whose um, whose life has careened in a trajectory that hurts them. And you want to say, you're choosing against your best self. Or you're choosing against who you're destined to be. You know that they might not see it. Um, and this is this deep, rich Christian understanding that the New Testament is written to people who are mis mystically in Christ. And there's no boundary there. There's no like, and, uh, but that doesn't apply to everyone. No, it does apply to everyone. The invitation is constantly being extended. We just listened in, uh, we, we do morning and evening prayer. It's such a great exercise to hear them read aloud. Um, as, as you, you know, I'm sure, but all throughout the week, not just on Sunday and the sin lists of first Timothy and everyone freaks out. Oh, oh gosh, look at all these, these sinners that are mentioned that are, that are not included. But what happens in the very same passage? And Paul says, after listing murderers that aren't welcome, he then says, oh, yeah, and I was one. <laughs> so the whole point of the sin list is invite these people in. They're choosing against who they actually are by committing these acts. They're destined. All people are destined to be in Christ. And that already has been affected for them universally at Calvary and in the resurrection. And the church's job is just to go, just go around telling people, <laughs> here's who, who you already are, is, is an invitation that is waiting for you simply to open. The envelope is already in your mailbox. You just have to open it. So that's this rich Christian understanding. And you're right, that Crossing book really does a good job of saying, um, I have to go look at it again and, and maybe connect it to, to this book because that's a that's a fascinating insight to put those two together. I had it, but I just never put uh, two and two together like you just did. Very good, very good. A brief goofy story just to show you that uh, you know even the profound can get goofy. I uh, last year uh, Bart Ehrman came on the show, uh -huh. and uh, in one of his recent books he mentions Anabasis, and you know. I posed my first question about this. I said, you know, what about this theme of Anabasis in this, you know, early Christian text? And he says, what in the world is that? And I said, uh, Anabasis, it's on this page, this paragraph. He says, oh, Anabasis? And I'm like, oh, well, okay. I, <laughs> if that's how you want me to say it, I'll say it that way. But Those, er those Erasmian pronunciations go back and forth. Exactly. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Well, one of the compliments that you pay to the to this icon is that it is efficient. Now, for our skeptical listeners, which is to say for the sake of me some days, <laughs> how much of this theology that you point to in this icon is inherent in the icon 
and how much of it do art historians impose on the paintings? I'm I'm I'm, I'm having my Nietzsche moment here. I mean, you know, are you uh, hiding the theology behind a bush and then saying, "Look, I found theology behind a bush." <laughs> Well, I mean, Exodus chapter three, there's a lot of theology. in, in verses. <laughs> That's good. So, That's good. Um, so, I mean, on the one hand, a, a, a historicist answer, right? Someone who has to have some kind of anchoring in history is that that's what the book points to. Like I've got, I, I have a couple of smoking guns, not just one of, I have actual families that are directly connected to Constantinople, where these theological debates were happening. And so they are coming to the island of Cyprus. There is extremely sophisticated monastic liturgical communities that would have been discussing this stuff all the time. They don't have phones that they're looking at, right? This is the topic of conversation du jour. And so I think a, a, an immediate connection can be made. On the other hand, um, even if that were disproven, if someone were to say that, you know, I found this document that where somebody said, um, no, there's no connection at all. I was just, you know, I, I'm still open to the fact that as an art historian, it's a creative act to put these ideas into conversation. Um, and I would gladly own that. But it just so happens that in this particular case, I have found immediate theological connections. One of the keys is you have to put the image back in its original context and study it that as best as possible. Pavel Florensky, the great martyr and Orthodox theologian and art historian of the 20th century, famously said that, well, famously, if you're a Byzantine art historian, this might be the first time you heard it if you're not. Um, he said that, um, what would we say of the ornithologist who never went into the wild and just studied birds pinned down a little glass box. We wouldn't think much of that ornithologist, would we? Right? You gotta go to the jungle if you want to understand these birds and their national natural habitat. In the same way, you've got to go into the Orthodox liturgy and you've got to go into the context of these churches if you're to understand how the images work. So having done that, and um, I, over many years, it's like, I was like, oh, these connections naturally come to be. So I think you, I think it, it actually is demonstrable that these theological connections aren't just being conjured from thin air. They're actually there. And you, and you might say, well, but then again, why are you tying it, tethering it to the American doc, you know, dilemma of predestination and the way it drove our uh, nation crazy? Well, because this icon is all over the United States. It's in the very cities where these controversies of predestination so publicly took place. It's right there in the heart of Boston that debated these issues because of the Puritan heritage. It's right there in St. Louis where the Lutherans debated this issue and it split the church four different ways. It's right there in city after city after city. Um, and so it's there to refresh our contemporary understanding. And if people were just open to a visual resolution to these controversies, and I fear they're not because they're like, oh yeah, art's like the pretty little bits when you're done doing the hard work of the verbal heavy lifting. They don't realize, sadly, tragically, that this Christian tradition um, operates both visually and verbally because that's how the revelation came. He didn't send a book, right? I all respect for Muslims. I have great respect for them, but their theology is logocentric to the extreme, right? The Quran is the revelation. Christians don't believe that. 
we believe that the Bible is a witness to the revelation, which was Jesus and is Jesus. And therefore, it is primarily uh, visual and verbal, not one or the other, right? It's both at the same time. The doctrine of the incarnation testifies to a visual event. The same Bible that says the word was made flesh also says he's the image of the invisible God. Which of those is true? Both. But unfortunately, this enlightenment-centered world of ours that generated all these academic disciplines that still shape us, whether we like it or not, privileges the verbal medium. And so the art historians are the, oh, how curious and interesting. What? Oh, what are you doing over there? Oh, might, might be nice if I have a, a free Sunday afternoon in a museum. I, I might look into that for some, some refreshment um, after I've expended my mind to process verbiage, right? No, sorry. Um, it, 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 it's a vehicle of truth. As much as words are, if anyone should believe that, Christians should believe that. Right. Now, some of our listeners might be wondering, I mean, you know, this icon, if it does appear in St. Louis and in Boston uh, and in Avengers movies, uh, why have I never heard of the Virgin of the Passion? And part of the reason wow. might be is that we <laughs> know it as Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Exactly. So I, I've got to ask exactly. because, I mean, you know, I've, I've driven by, you know, the Church of Our Lady of Perpetual Help in multiple states. Yeah, and uh, yep. you know when does that name change, <laughs> yeah. and uh, do the two names coexist hist historically, or you yeah. know, what, what was this your big reveal towards the end of the book? Yeah, so um, it this is a really fascinating case of appropriation, right? Because the Pope Pius the Ninth, the 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 longest reigning Pope in history, very famous nineteenth century Pope, he is the one who makes this icon famous and he is the one who says who confirms a tradition that preceded him of western catholic christians giving it the name our lady of perpetual help and it's funny in these in these uh, visions that people have in front of the icon. And I believe that these visions may actually have taken place, right? But how they get recorded is often perhaps a little different. They get a little, they get a little uh, spicier in the, in the transcription, right? And all of a sudden these like Christian polemics get embedded into these heavenly visions <laughs> and they'll say, and Mary's like, yeah, but my real name is Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Um, and so, uh, in other words, you have this Roman Catholic Virgin Mary who's saying, yeah, now I belong to you. Um, and that's wonderful, right? That these Western Christians accepted this gorgeous Eastern icon without knowing um, the depth of its theology. Um, they may have intuited it, but they couldn't have known it because you have to wait for the tools of scholarship later to unfurl all these complexities that now we have access to. Um, so this icon becomes a Western thing. And believe it or not, they say, oh, yeah, um, those recalcitrant, stubborn, orthodox Eastern Christians have not accepted the papacy. And this is our reward. Um, they're being beaten down by Muslims because they haven't submitted to us. And Jesus has given us this icon, which is their patrimony, which now belongs to us. They will say that, right? That was said as, as early as 100 years ago. And, you know, we can laugh at that because the ecumenical movement hasn't hadn't happened yet. Um, and I respect the scholars who have done that work. But those same scholars also will 
you have to be fair to them because they'll also say, and aren't we also realizing the beauty of the Eastern Orthodox Church through this icon too? And so really, even though there's those anti-Eastern polemics, we might call it kind of an internal Christian Orientalism embedded in those documents, it also is the way that the Eastern icon first overwhelmed the Catholicism. And that Catholicism said, gosh, you know, it isn't just all this Baroque aesthetics that drive us. Aren't we drawn to the primitive, simple purity of the Orthodox image? And so um, the Virgin of the Passion, a.k.a. Our Lady of Perpetual Help, is one of the first ways of, we might call it reverse colonization, right? Where the, the beauty of Orthodoxy enchanted it and overwhelmed the, the, the West, which is now uh, de rigueur. It's everywhere, right? You, go in, you can't go into a Methodist church without seeing an icon now. Good for us, right? We've come a long way. But we used to dismiss all that as the the G.K. Chesterton dismisses it as sort of the the static primitive aesthetics of of a lesser church, right? We don't have to do that anymore, thank God. We've come to realize the 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 deep deep wisdom embedded in these icons. But no, actually, I take that back. We haven't realized it enough because we still slap our Andre Rublev trinities up there and say, okay, I've done my work yet. Yeah, there's the Eastern icon. That's an important church and all that stuff. But we don't realize that it's actually eloquently speaking to us, very likely um, running circles around some of the verbal theological disputation that we still like to have. Very good. And as is my habit, I'm going to go from the transcendent to the trash talk because <laughs> I've got to let our listeners hear this. Uh, you know, just to give them another inducement to go get your book. Uh, in brief, tell the story of when the icon gets stolen and then it becomes a sale by taunt outside the walls of Constantinople. Ah, uh, yes. So you're, so um, it's, it is pretty funny. So this is the victory bringer icon that you can still see in Venice today. If you want to see the icon that claims to be this image. And so um, when the, so when the when the Venetians are are taking Constantinople, you don't just take that city; it's well defended in in twelve o four. And so there's this uh, this guy. I'm just I'm not making fun of him. I'm just telling you what the historical record says. He's got a unibrow, okay, <laughs> and his name is Mortsuflos, right? So he's like, oh, I'll fix this. I will conquer these western intruders once and for all hop on horseback we're gonna bring this beautiful marian icon that's gonna give us the victory and they're galloping off to conquer the crusaders and the crusaders made short trip of them they they were t field tested they just just wasted them and Morsuflos is all embarrassed he runs back to the city and um but they got the miracle working icon of mary and Morsuflos goes back to Constantinople. He was a he was a pretender to the imperial throne. He's like, they're like, where's where's the icon? And, and he's like, oh, I, I lost it. <laughs> and, then, and then he's in the city, and the Venetians they get their boats and they go up right up to the gates where everyone can see them. And then they blow these trumpets and they hold up the icon like, hey, Morsuflos, did you lose something? And so they're taunting him. With the victory bringing icon of the mother of God, Nikopoya, victory bringer, right? The, the the victory maker. That's what her nickname is. 
And so these are funny stories. And Venice really loves this tale, obviously, for you know reasons, because it's it's both humorous and delightful. Um, but also it's kind of nasty, right? It's like Mary connected to to victory. Um, it's un unfortunately richly connected to our uh, tragically connected to our own country um you may have heard of the icon if you're from santa fe uh called la conquistadora right yep yeah right this is like this is deliberately uh, a punitive image to beat back the pueblo revolt and say and 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 um, 70 people were killed in the battle that led to the erection of this church and 80 people were executed. I mean, this was no small thing, right? You will never rebel against us again. And La Conquistadora will remind you, you can still see it in Santa Fe, this image of Mary. So again, I, I've been making jokes, but all of a sudden this Mary connected to, to conquest and colonization is no, is no fiction. So we're back to our question that the person tragically wrestling with Christianity asked themselves, ah, what do I do with this Christianity connected to the colonizer? Well, you find the Christianity of the colonized. And so one way of putting it, I didn't put it this way in the book because I hadn't thought of it, but ever since I've been com contemplating this. So what's the answer to la conquistadora? Here it is, la conquistada, the conquered, our lady of the conquered and so what we don't need is one more victory bringing icon of the mother of god which is exactly what vladimir putin is doing in russia right now he has marshaled images of the virgin mary to fuel the flames of this war and so i when i wrote this i was not expecting it to be current events unfortunately it is we have the same deployment of the virgin mary for militaristic purposes and the answer must again be the suffering love of the cross, the true cross, not the other one. And not only does that show up in the Virgin of the Passion tradition all over the globe, believe it or not, it shows up in Moscow itself. It's in Russia. There is a peace-loving church that was eviscerated by Stalin that is a Russian version of the Virgin of the Passion. And I say peace-loving because I was expecting uh, that would have been devastating to me to see that even this icon has been militarized. And lo and behold, I read a very well-written article by a Russian scholar who knows if she's even allowed to speak right now, but she made the claim that this beautiful monastery in Pushkinskaya Square that was devastated that some Russians are campaigning for its reconstruction is conversion of the passion. It's Russian version. And she said, they are not militaristic hyper pro-Russia Orthodox believers. They're of a more peaceful and ironic kind. And she connected them to the protesters who are arrested in that square today. I was stunned. Well, it was before the war. So she wrote it just at the time where people who protested the government. There are other kinds of Christianity. Thank God for all these scholars who've done this painstaking work, not myself. I just draw upon them and put them in the book and um, just know that if you you're if you're faced with a toxic form of christianity please don't let it shape your consciousness let it go if at all possible forgive them to be released from the hold they have had upon you and go find the minority christians the creative christians in any part of the globe that you can find that unfurl different dimensions of depth within christianity 
the Virgin of the Passion, thank goodness, is just one example of that, but it's a pretty prominent one. Every corner of the globe has examples of these kind of Christians. Why are we giving all the attention to the jerks? Because they have the bullhorns? They sure do. But no, we give it to them. We amplify their bullhorns because I want you to know how bad it all is, right? Although if you've ever... uh eating lunch on the campus of university of georgia where i did my doctorate uh oh it's that, a literal they, bull. They, they literally do bring their bullhorns oh that's too bad that's too bad so, well hold up a virgin of the passion to them that's we'll what see. i should have done see had, had i had sure this book. resolved the situation <laughs> well matthew i have been at the wheel for most of this conversation so in the spirit of hospitality i'm going to let you have the last word what do you want our listeners thinking about the virgin of the passion about iconography more generally or about whatever else as we head for the door? Hmm. The icons do the work is one of the things that I would say. Um, especially they do the work if you have a home with children that, um, that you know, have beautiful images that testify to the Christian. You might have Augustine on your shelf or, or, or you know, Mechtilde of Magdeburg on your shelf. Good for you. But, you know, the icon is always speaking, Right. And so choose these tested, proven, gorgeous bricks of gold, dense with the wisdom of another age, and put them in your home. Um, there are all kinds of inexpensive ways of getting them. I don't own one handwritten icon. Right? Everyone gets all excited about it. They're too expensive, right? I use cheap copies, right? Because they're affordable and, and I love them, right? And so all that to say... Um, it's wonderful that we have these resources available to us. So deploy this visual tradition, consider it your own. Do not listen to an Orthodox Christian capital O who tells you it's theirs and it belongs to them, right? Does Gregory of Nyssa belong to them? Does Gregory of Nazianzus belong to them? Does the Bible belong to Protestants? How ridiculous. Of course not. We share these resources. Belongs to all of us. And so that would be the thing I would say. Enjoy this tradition. Make it your own. Find what your icon is going to be. And you might say, well, I want some beautiful Renaissance painting. You can get cheap reproduction of that. Of that. Sure. But you know what? You know what that's the equivalent of? Gordon Graham, my professor in seminary, put it this way. He's like, you know, not everyone can sing Handel's Messiah. And sometimes when we try, it's not very good, right? But you can all sing a hymn. You can all maybe do Gregorian chant. That's what icons are. They're communal forms of art that are easily reproduced, that is there for everyone. Take advantage of this resource of Christian wisdom. I think uh, you'll pro- if once you start to dig into this, you're going to find an icon that speaks to you, that speaks to your family, that speaks to your friends, that, that you can, it's the greatest gift to give to someone. Here's an icon that I found for you. I'd like to, you to have it hanging up in your home. So um, just, it's yours. Run with it. It would be, would be my, my charge to your listeners. Matthew Milner, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you, Nathan. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is Mother of the Lamb from Fortress Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.